how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Isaiah Part 1. I'm going to begin with three interesting facts which are not in the Word of God. First of all, in the year 1948, a Bedouin goat herd at Qumran, just at the northern end of the Dead Sea, was just throwing stones at random and threw one into a cave on a cliff opposite him. I heard the sound of breaking clay or crockery and fled, thinking he'd uh, done some damage to some domestic property, but uh, nothing happened, so he came back and crawled down the cliff into the cave and found some jars about three feet high. This is a model of one. And uh, he looked inside and found inside some ancient scrolls. They were, in fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, it was a great discovery. And among many fragments of the Old Testament was one complete copy of the book of Isaiah. And they were just translating the Revised Standard Version of the Isaiah at that very time. And they said, halt the translation. We have found a new copy. And the significance was that this was a copy a thousand years older than the earliest manuscript they already had. The very oldest copy of Isaiah was 900 AD, but this was 100 BC. And it took our knowledge of Isaiah a thousand years nearer to the original. So they said, oh, we'll have to alter everything, so hold it. And in fact, they had to make very few alterations to their translation. It had been preserved so well and so carefully over a thousand years. Last year was the 250th anniversary of Handel's Messiah, as I'm sure you knew, because it was played so often on radio and TV. As you probably know, it was a clergyman who wrote the words for Handel's Messiah, or the lyrics as you're supposed to call them now, and he gave these words to Handel and said, set music to them. Twenty-four days later, Handel came back with all the music and the clergyman was absolutely disgusted and said, you can't possibly have written any good music in that short time and he hardly spoke to Handel again. But in fact, Handel was really inspired and you know the result. And an awful lot of the lyrics come straight out of Isaiah. Once again, Isaiah is brought to the public attention. Now, the chapter headings in the Bible are not inspired. And in fact, I wish we had a Bible without chapter and verse numbers. We'd really know the Bible. And for at least 1,100 years, the Christian church had Bibles without any chapter and verse numbers in. They had to learn it by context. But whoever divided Isaiah into chapters did a rather interesting thing. I don't even know if they were conscious of what they were doing. They divided it into 66 chapters and the Bible has 66 books. Furthermore, they divided Isaiah into two distinct halves, 39 chapters and 27 chapters. And it just happens that the Old Testament has 39 chapters and the New Testament has 27 books rather. 
Furthermore, the message of the first 39 chapters summarises the message of the Old Testament and the message of the second part, the 27 chapters, 40 to 66, summarises exactly the message of the New Testament. It begins with the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, John the Baptist. It moves on to a servant of the Lord who is anointed by the Holy Spirit who dies for the sins of his people and is raised and exalted after his death. It moves on to, you shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And it finishes up with God saying, I am making all things new. I create a new heaven and a new earth. And it finishes up with another place where the fire never goes out and the worms never die. In other words, if somebody took the whole Bible and went and squeezed it into one book, you'd finish up with the prophet Isaiah. It's the Bible in miniature. So if you want to know your Bible, your whole Bible, just read Isaiah and you've got the whole thing condensed. Isn't that remarkable? Even more remarkable, I'm sure they didn't realise what they were doing. Chapters 40 to 66, which are equivalent to the New Testament, by subject matter divide very clearly into three sections, each of nine chapters. And 40 to 48, the theme is comforting God's people. 49 to 57, the theme is this servant of the Lord who dies and rises again. And 58 to 66 are about future glory. Furthermore, in each of those sections of nine chapters, by subject matter, they each clearly divide into three sections of three chapters. So the 27 chapters divide into three lots of nine. Each lot of nine divides into three lots of three. If you take the middle three, There are three very clear sections in that, 49 to 51, 52 to 54, and 55 to 57. But take the middle section and that clearly divides into three subjects, chapters 52, 53, and 54. It's just one verse out there. The chapter heading got slightly wrong there. And if you take the middle verse of the middle chapter of the middle section of that middle section, of the New Testament part of Isaiah, you come to the verse, he was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. What a remarkable focusing in. And none of that I think is inspired, but it's fascinating, isn't it? (laughs) Now, Isaiah is very well known in parts. I I remember somebody talking about, uh, after reading Shakespeare, he said he didn't like it. It was too full of quotations, you know, and he was sure that Shakespeare had pinched a lot of his material from somewhere else, little realising that it was William Shakespeare who originated these well-known quotations. The same is true of the book of Isaiah. And uh, there are texts that roll off our tongues because if you've been brought up in church circles, you will have had all those texts. Um, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Maybe you've never seen scarlet wool. That's what it looks like. She's just hanging out the wool to dry after dyeing it. There is no way you can get that white again, humanly speaking. And yet God says, though your sins are that colour, they shall be whiter than snow. You've all quoted that. Tell you about this later. The ladies will be interested in that one. But uh, there are many other quotations that we're so used to. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That's on a block of granite outside the United Nations headquarters in New York. What a pity they didn't quote the whole verse. He shall judge between the nations. 
and they shall beat their swords into plowshares because there's no way that without him judging that we'll ever manage to do the rest. But they've put it there. A virgin <coughs> shall conceive and call his name Emmanuel. You all know that from Christmas as well as from Handel's Messiah. And un unto us a child is born, a son is given. Or what about you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you? What about they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall rise up with wings like eagles. And how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those that bring good news. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. I've heard that quoted so many times in prayer meetings. There are certain well-known chapters which are among the most frequently read chapters in church. I give you half a dozen which are really almost over-read in church. Chapter 6, you heard that. Chapter 6, the call of Isaiah, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Holy, holy. That's a favourite reading, but unfortunately those who read it always end at the wrong verse. Here am I, send me. Here endeth the rest. And they don't go on to that very important bit afterwards, what he was sent to do, which is tragic. We'll look at that later. There's chapter 35, all about the desert blossoming as a rose and a highway shall be there. You've heard that so often. And then chapter 40, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, voice crying in the wilderness. And then chapter 53, who doesn't? No chapter 53, if you've been in church for a few months, you will have heard that. Wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities. Chapter 55, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You've heard that, haven't you? And chapter 61, which was the text for our Lord's first sermon in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Set at liberty those that are captive and so on. So it's very well known in parts and that's a problem. You see, because we've got chapter and verse numbers, we pick chapters out and we pick verses out and we know them very well. But people don't know Isaiah very well. Isn't that tragic? We know bits of it extremely well, better than bits out of any other Old Testament book, but we don't know the book as we should. That's what I'm going to try and help you with. There are many quotes in the New Testament from the second half of Isaiah, many, many quotes. Death shall be swallowed up in victory. The phrase grieving the Holy Spirit comes from that section. God shall wipe away all tears, a voice crying in the wilderness. You shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. All these are straight out of this second half of Isaiah. It was Jesus' favourite book. And he referred to this book more frequently than any other scripture. It was Paul's favourite book and Paul quotes more frequently from it. In other words, if you really want to know the Bible, get to know Isaiah. It'll provide you with insights into the New Testament as well as the Old. It is a Bible in miniature. So let's move on. I want to talk about the man. We don't know too much. Like most biblical writers, he was rather self-effacing and God-centred, so he didn't talk about himself much. What we do know is partly from his writings, but also from other Jewish history. The historian Josephus says quite a lot about Isaiah, and so does Jewish tradition. So let me put the picture together. He must have had godly parents. His name is very interesting. It's the same name as Jesus and Joshua. It's 
Pity it got anglicised into Isaiah, we miss the connection. In Hebrew, Yesa Yahu. You know what Yahu is? That's God's name. But Yesa, that means salvation or saves. God saves. Um, we have a little post office in our village, and until recently, the proprietor was Mr. God Save. <laughs> Mr. God Save the postman. And uh, <laughs> God Save, God Save in Hebrew is Isaiah, Yesa Yahu exactly the same name as Joshua and Jesus. It was prophetic because he's been called the evangelist of the Old Testament. He's the one who brings the gospel, the good news, especially in that second half. The word new, as you probably know, hardly ever occurs in the Old Testament except for a verse like, behold, there is nothing new under the sun, says the preacher in Ecclesiastes. But the word new does occur frequently in this second half of Isaiah. It's the only place it does occur in the Old Testament. New, new heaven, new earth, new creation, I make all things new. It is the good news of the Old Testament and he grew up to be the greatest prophet of all time. There isn't a prophet to touch Isaiah. And he is classed by the Jews with Moses and Elijah who were great prophets indeed but Isaiah was the greatest prophet in word. Now from a human point of view, he had a head start. He was born in the palace and brought up at court. He was the grandson of King Joash and therefore cousin to King Uzziah. That's why King Uzziah's death hit him so badly. It was his own cousin and he had access. He was part of the royal family. He had wealth, rank, education, now, do you think it's easier or harder to be a prophet if you're brought up like that? I think it would be much harder for him. But nevertheless, he had such an encounter with the Lord in the temple that he had no choice, really. So he moved freely in court circles. He counseled kings, and that's why much of his prophecy deals with political issues, especially the false security of making alliances with the world powers, either Assyria, in the northeast or with Egypt in the southwest. So there's a political flavour here because he was right in the circles of government. As far as his own family life is concerned, his wife was a prophetess, but we haven't a single prophecy from her. I reckon he checked his, his out with her and that she being a prophetess would say, that's of the Lord, Isaiah, you go and tell them. Uh, so here we have a husband who's a prophet, a wife who's a prophetess, and I'm sure that together they heard from God, but he was the spokesman for the pair. Now, the children, he had at least two sons, possibly three, but certainly two, and I've given you their name before. One was called Mahershalal Hashbaz, which is quite a mouthful. What's your name, little boy? Mahershalal Hashbaz. What does that mean? Haste the booty, speed the spoil. And in fact, it was a prophetic name that one day Jerusalem itself would be looted by an enemy and all the treasures taken. The other, that's bad news, that boy's name, but the other little boy was called Shia Yashub. And that's good news. It means a remnant shall return. And here are the two focal messages of Isaiah. The bad news, which is mainly in the first half of his book, is that uh, Jerusalem will be sacked and looted and spoiled. 
But the good news, the name of his second boy, which summarises the second half of his book, is A Remnant Shall Return. Israel still has a future, even after losing everything. Now his call is interesting. The third child, by the way, it's only speculation that his third child was the little boy called Emmanuel. And certainly there was a little boy born around that time and was the subject of prophecy, uh, but nevertheless uh, I think it was an, another woman's child, not his, but some have speculated that he had a third child. Emmanuel, God with us. That little boy's birth was a sign to the king. It was also a double sign because it was fulfilled centuries later in Jesus. Now then his call, he went into the temple, saw the Lord and was overcome with the holiness of the Lord. And from then on Isaiah called God something that nobody else did. And it's a phrase that occurs nearly 50 times all the way through his book and significantly in both halves. He called him the Holy One of Israel. It's a unique title and it was Isaiah's own name because the thing that overwhelmed him was God's holiness and as soon as he caught a sight of God's holiness, he felt unclean and felt he shouldn't even be in the temple. And it's very interesting that he felt unclean in the, on his lips because, you know, dirty speech is unclean. There's an awful lot in the Bible about our speech, about our words, and he felt dirty. And then he had that remarkable experience that an angel flew with a live red-hot coal and cauterized his lips and forever afterwards he had a scarred mouth. Hope you realise this really happened to him, it wasn't a vision. And when they said, how did you get your mouth like that? It's all scarred. He said, God had to burn my lips, cauterize them. He was the man with the scarred lips, he always spoke through that burnt mouth for the rest of his life. It really did happen and uh, people would listen to his words I think because of that. Boy, that was the cost of being a prophet. And then he was asked, whom shall I send, I, and who will go for us? What an extraordinary little glimpse of the Trinity there is there. One and yet more than one. Whom shall I send, who will go for us? And then came the shattering news. You're to go and preach and they will not listen. Your preaching will make them hard of hearing. They will not receive. You won't get any response. Now what a thing! And you know that statement of the Lord to Isaiah, don't think you're going to be a successful preacher. The more you preach, the harder they will get. And he said, I'm going to use your preaching to deafen them and blind them lest they should be converted and get healed. It's an extraordinary statement. The Word of God not only opens people's hearts but it closes them as well. And in fact, it can push people further away. After you've listened to the Word of God, you're either harder against it or you're softer towards it. You can't remain neutral. That makes this weekend a bit frightening, doesn't it? You're either going to be more open to God's Word or less, but you won't be the same as you came here. And for Isaiah, the Word had to harden people and deafen them and put them off. And that is more quoted in the New Testament than any other verse in Isaiah. Jesus used it of his own ministry, he says, I, I speak in parables so that hearing they may not hear and seeing they may not see, lest they be converted and be healed. In other words, he spoke in parables to hide the truth and to harden those who weren't really interested. 
And Paul quotes the same thing when he preached to the Jews and the Jews wouldn't listen. He quoted that exact same verse. We need to remember the Word of God has this double effect. And no wonder Isaiah said, how long do I have to go on preaching and hardening them with no response? And the Lord said, until the land lies waste and the cities are desolate, yet there will be a tenth and the tree will grow again. Now fancy facing 40 years of ministry and knowing that people wouldn't respond to it. I want you to realise what a tough task he had because if he hadn't gone through with it, we wouldn't have this amazing book. He didn't know that centuries ahead this book would be an inspiration. But in his lifetime, he was a failure. Nobody listened. They just got harder and harder. Forty years. Now let's look at the geography and history a bit. It's important to get a location in time and space of these prophets. First of all, let's get a little geography. Here's the familiar scene of the Middle East and the Fertile Crescent, the Persian Gulf and the Tigris and Euphrates, the Red Sea, the Mediterranean, Cyprus and the Nile. And here we have the ten tribes of Israel in the north with their capital Samaria and the two tribes of Judah in the south with their capital at Jerusalem. And they are surrounded by small nations and in the distance are big ones. And uh, we're going to see in the book of Isaiah that time and again God used first of all the small nations to discipline his people, but when they wouldn't listen he had to use the big ones. So the small nations, there were the Syrians in the north, capital Damascus. There were the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites on the other side of the Jordan and the Dead Sea in the hills of Transjordan. Down towards the coast here were the Philistines whom God had brought from Crete and down in the desert were the Arabs. Now there were some very interesting alliances against little Judah in Isaiah's day. For example, the ten tribes of Israel made an alliance with the Syrians to attack little Judah. That was serious. And it was then that Isaiah went to the king and said, it's all right, we will win. The king said, but we're just a tiny little two tribes and there are ten tribes plus the Syrians. And that's when Isaiah said, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Now what does Emmanuel mean? God is with us? Well, let me give you four possible translations. You tell me which it is. It's either God is with us or it's God is with us or God is with us or God is with us. Now which of the four is it? Well, we haven't time to take a vote. It's the fourth. The emphasis is on us. God is with us, not with them. In other words, it means God is on our side. And when that boy was conceived and that name was given, the king knew that that alliance of ten tribes plus the Syrians wouldn't win because God is with us. Even though ten tribes of Israel were on the other side, God isn't with them. <coughs> He's with us, said Isaiah, and that's the origin of that phrase, Emmanuel. Another time the Philistines linked up with the Arabs and that was a pretty serious alliance against little Judah, but again, 
God was on their side. Over here was Assyria with its capital Nineveh on the shores of the Tigris and uh, that was the big power in the northeast. And Down here was Egypt and that was the big power in the southwest. There was a little power growing down here, not far from Baghdad, a little power called Babylon which we shall talk about much more when we study Ezekiel and Daniel, but Babylon was going to be the major problem, but it wasn't in Isaiah's day. Assyria was in its last years of power and was the greatest threat that came on Jerusalem. You see, Isaiah prophesied during four reigns. Four reigns. He was killed by Manasseh but he said uh, he began in the year that King Uzziah died, really began to preach in the time of Jotham or Yotham, then Ahaz, Hezekiah and finally Manasseh. Let's just see the kind of pattern that happens. The, we're looking, at, looking now at the political side. There are those kings down the left-hand side, Uzziah, Yotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah and Manasseh. Were they good kings or bad kings? Well, uh, good is green. Uzziah was a good king to begin with, had a long reign, 52 years. Alas, in the last years he became a bad king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and he died of leprosy. And that was his punishment for changing from a good king to a bad king. Now it's very interesting, whenever the king was good, they won their battles, but whenever the king was bad, they lost them. It is, it's not a coincidence this, it's just straight because when they were good, God was with them so nobody could defeat them. But when the kings were bad, God was not with them and they were defeated. The first attack came during the early years of Isaiah from the Philistines and the Arabs together. That was a pretty formidable force but they won because the king was good. But when the king became bad and he did become really bad, Assyria came and they lost, but Assyria didn't stay. They went back to their own country, but it was a fierce battle and they lost. And then Uzziah died. In the year that King Uzziah died, it says, you may be interested that archaeologists have actually discovered Uzziah's tomb and that stone actually says, here the bones, or sorry, Hebrew goes that way, here the bones of Uzziah and they've actually found it, which I think is interesting. It's not in the Bible but it's interesting. <laughs> and uh, there's a, a bas-relief of Sennacherib the Assyrian. We're going to see a lot of, more of that man later sitting on his throne uh, receiving the homage of conquered foes but that's old Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians. Now just running through, Yotham was a good king and whoever came to attack during his time was defeated. The Ammonites came and then this awful alliance between Israel and Syria came. That should uh, just be under Ahaz actually. Um, it was at the time of the changeover from Yotham to Ahaz but Yotham's influence was still there and they were defeated. But then Ahaz came, he was a bad king through and through. The Edomites came lost the battle. Philistines came again, lost the battle. Assyrians came again, lost the battle. And the Assyrians were getting 
as it were, closer and closer to things and becoming more and more of a threat. Then came a good king, good King Hezekiah. The Philistines came and were defeated. The Assyrians came and besieged Jerusalem. 185,000 troops came. We'll see what happens then. In fact, yes, let's, let's go through it now. You notice, by the way, that Amos was preaching in the north and Hosea in the north at the same time, contemporaries with Isaiah. But here we are. Finally, the Assyrians came and Ahaz. They didn't conquer Jerusalem, but they conquered Samaria and the ten tribes of Israel were lost in 721. What did Hezekiah do? Well, since Jerusalem was besieged, the most serious thing was water. So, in fact, Hezekiah dug a tunnel to bring a spring of water inside the city. And if ever you go to Jerusalem, you must walk through the tunnel. It is a weird experience, but the first time I went through, the water was up to here and the ceiling is just above your head and it's weird. And all our candles went out and we were in total darkness, up to your chest in water and hitting your head on the roof and walking half a mile through the rock. That was an experience. And uh, we went later with um, some of our church members and one rather naughty church member to tease us had a torch and uh, he pretended that the tunnel went deep and he went like this <laughs> until all we could see ahead was this hand and the torch above the water going through. In the, in the middle of the tunnel, halfway through in the tunnel, they found this inscription which they dug out and there it describes how Hezekiah dug the tunnel to bring the water into Jerusalem. Well, that was done to try and save the city under siege to get a secret tunnel of water into the city. But outside there were 185,000 Assyrians. And uh, you can read all the story in uh, Isaiah chapters 36 to 39. That's the only uh, part of Isaiah that is narrative. I thought you might be interested in this. There are the troops of the Assyrians, the troops of Sennacherib, bringing captives back to Assyria and the captives are all tiny. They're about that high, whereas the troops are twice the height. That's the way they said, you know, these little people we've conquered. It reduced them to size. But 185,000 outside Jerusalem and God said, I will defeat them. And the next morning when they woke up, all 185,000 were dead and it says they'd been killed by one angel. Until a few years ago, people thought that was a fairy story, but a British archaeologist has found all the skeletons. That's a photograph of the skulls lying at the foot of the wall. They're found. They're Assyrian skeletons. Not a very good photograph, but you can see the, those are all human skulls. There are thousands of them lying against the Jerusalem wall and now revealed for all to see. So Hezekiah was a good king and Assyria was defeated, but Hezekiah made a big mistake. Little Babylon sent him a get well card when he was sick. And it all started with a get well card. It's amazing really. Hezekiah fell desperately ill and he he didn't want to die and he cried to the Lord and the Lord gave him 15 more years of life. 
But meanwhile, a messenger had come from this little town of Babylon, which was quite small then, with a get well card from the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah was rather pleased that somebody so far away was thinking about him. And so he, he showed this visitor all his treasures, showed him around his palace, showed him around the temple. So now you go back and tell your little king what a wonderful king I am. And Isaiah came in and said, what did you show that man from Babylon? And he said, well, I showed him all our treasures. And Isaiah said, one day the king of Babylon will take everything you showed that man. It's a very dramatic little bit of narrative right in the middle of Isaiah. Manasseh was a horrid king. He was involved in Satan worship. He even sacrificed his own son to Satan or to Moloch, the demonic god that uh, was the centre of the Satan worship. And it was Manasseh who hated Isaiah so much he forbade him ever to speak. So Isaiah wrote, and thank God he did write because you've got the result sitting on your knee right now. But finally Manasseh could stand no more and he resolved to kill the prophet and do you know how he killed him? He ordered a hollow tree trunk to be brought and he tied Isaiah up and pushed him into the hollow tree and then ordered two men with a big saw to cut him in half. He's mentioned in Hebrews 11, some were sawn asunder and Jewish history tells you Isaiah was the one who was sawn in two. So that is the background of the history and the geography. Now the first thing that really hits you about the book of Isaiah is that it's in two parts and that there is a real contrast between the two. Now let's say straight away that like other prophets, it's a collection of different messages made at different times. It's not in chronological order, sometimes it's in topical order, sometimes they're in no order, so it's a bit of a mixture. But on the whole, one type of prophecy has been put in the first part of the book and another type in the second part of the book. It's not straightforward, it's not easy to follow through, it's not linear. We're used to linear books that start at the beginning and finish at the end. It's not like that. Nevertheless, this is the first clear feature. The first 39 chapters are quite different from the last 27, so much so that in school children are taught that the second half was written by someone else, a man called Deutero-Isaiah. And Deutero means second and so they talk about second Isaiah. In part one there is more bad news, in part two more good news. In part one there's an emphasis on what human activity is, what men are doing that's wrong. In part two the emphasis on what God is doing. In part one, a great emphasis on sin and retribution. In part two, an emphasis on salvation and redemption. Part one majors on justice and part two on mercy. Here we now have a prophet who majors on both. Remember, Jonah majored on mercy and Nahum on justice. Amos on justice, Hosea on mercy. But here we have a prophet who's able to combine the two. In part one, he confronts Israel with her sin. In part two, he comforts Israel with good news of the future. Part one 
only sees the God of Israel, but part two gets a much magnified view of God, that means a bigger view of God, and sees the creator of the universe. Part one is therefore national, part two is international. Part one looks at Israel and her immediate neighbours, the little nations around her, but part two looks at Israel and all the nations of the world, and we are mentioned in part two because the distant islands are Great Britain. The Phoenicians used to come here for tin in Isaiah's day and they thought Great Britain was the end of the world. So when they talked about the ends of the earth and the distant islands, that's us and we're in the second part. In the first part, God is supremely pictured as fire and that's always a judgment picture. But in the second half, God is Father. In the first half, his arm is upraised to strike. In the second half, part or hand upraised to strike. In the second part, his arm is outstretched to save. In the first part, there are curses, curses, woes, woes. But in the second part, blessings. The first part is described as God's strange work, meaning the work he doesn't like doing, the work he doesn't want to do. He doesn't want to judge whereas the second half is just full of good tidings. The first half majors on Jews, but the second half is full of Gentiles under the word nations, which is the same as the word Gentiles. The first half, Assyria, is the enemy, but the second half, which is about the future, Babylon becomes the major instrument of God's judgment. In the first half, it is written before the exile of events leading up to the exile, but the second half is about events after the exile. Now, the events after the exile are given in such detail that that is why skeptics say it must have been written by someone else. You either believe that God knows the future or you don't. If you don't, then Isaiah couldn't have said that Babylon would be defeated by a man called Cyrus because that happened a hundred years after Isaiah was dead. And you either believe that God knows what's going to happen and you accept that the prophet therefore wrote it or you believe that God doesn't know the future and therefore the prophet didn't write it. That's the kind of issue. Let's just say a little more about that. I'm afraid this is the biggest argument over Isaiah that there is now, that uh, Proto-Isaiah, as the scholars call him, that means first Isaiah wrote chapters 1 to 39, Deutero-Isaiah wrote chapters 40 to 66, but now the latest scholastic opinion divides even the second half and now there's a Trito-Isaiah, Isaiah number 3, who apparently wrote the last 10 chapters. So we now have three Isaiahs and this is taught as gospel truth in schools. Now, it's widely accepted and the emphasis is put on differences of style and content and vocabulary. Bear in mind, Isaiah gave many messages over a period of many years and with a different aim, either to confront or comfort, he would naturally use a different style and different vocabulary. Yet they still insist on this, that the detailed predictions in part two couldn't possibly have been foretold. That's the real issue. The real issue is, does God know the future, does he plan the future and does he control the future? 
Does he make it happen? Now, it's really a question then of faith and what you believe about God. But there are other factors which convince me that Isaiah the prophet is responsible for the whole book. There are three things in particular I would mention. First, there is so much in common to both parts. Take his favourite description of God as the Holy One of Israel. Fifty times, twenty-five in part one, twenty-five in part two. How come? Well, people say people were, somebody was imitating. But secondly, isn't it amazing that the writer of that second part, which is the greatest prophetic section in the whole Bible, that somehow his name should be forgotten? Isn't that amazing? That the greatest prophecy should come from someone who's anonymous when they knew the names of all the other prophets. I can't believe that such a great prophet of God could remain anonymous. Surely it must be Isaiah. But in fact, both Jesus and Paul quote the second part and say, as Isaiah the prophet said, and frankly that settles it for me. I don't believe either Jesus or Paul could tell a lie like that and they accepted it. So I just mentioned that because it's very frequently said. Well, we're running out of time for this talk and I was hoping to say a bit more about part one and part two but I think we'll have to wait till next time just to look at that. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.